Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Well, Ben, I got to tell you, you know, we had you back on, I think it was like maybe May of last year, something like that. And uh, your episode was one, was one of our most popular episodes. It was one of like the first really big ones we had where really people were excited and a lot. That's great. I'm you, thrilled you to put hear us that. on the map. Well, <laughs> yeah. you, know, I mean, you, had a lot, you had a lot of interesting stuff to say, and I think people really enjoy listening to what you say. And, and I know when we last talked, you know, you said, well, there's a lot of things we can still cover. And I think that's, so you're our first return guest. So we hey, well, I'm this. delighted. I'm delighted. We're on, we're on, I think this is like episode 63 or something like that. So we're starting to. Uh, we got lots of people coming on still, but we, you know, we wanted to reach out to you again. And I know one of the one of the topics that you lamented that we didn't get to cover that much was regarding uh, the mitochondria, and I think that is something that uh, you know, if you're if you're willing to maybe maybe discuss some of that and how the implications of how the mitochondria work, what their health implications might be, or really any other things. Because I know you've been putting out a lot of studies that you found interesting, and so I think those things. Let's just kind of go from there. But whatever you want to talk about, Ben, I'm sure our audience will just absolutely eat it up yeah. as, as I will. And hopefully we can get some intelligent. Uh, hopefully Zach and I can figure out some intelligent questions to ask you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it'll be refreshing. Uh, the semester started, so I'm always looking forward to good questions. Um, and, and always, uh, yeah, of course, being a professor means it's this odd mix of actually answering a question you know the answer to and then, um, uh, you know, kind of being humble enough to admit when you don't know. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, but, but guys, let's make sure we talk a little bit about mTOR sure. and, and mTOR signaling and, and a lot of the um, well, let's start. Let's start with that, Ben. Yeah, let's let's get roll into it if that's what. Well, you're yeah, yeah, because uh, mitochondria. We'll come back to that no matter what. I'm sure, just because that's so much of an area of research. As, uh, as you guys know, when I when I spoke at the low carb Denver meeting that Rod Taylor and Jeff Gerber put on every year last year, I wanted to talk about protein at the time. And Sean, actually, you were a a, a main reason for that. Um, you and your um, compatriots in the carnivore world. I was seeing so much. Um, I saw this kind of divergence in the low carb realm. And, and on one hand, it's the people that were doing nothing but drinking as much oil as they could. And, and considering that a viable like nutritional model, you know, drinking melted butter, drinking MCT oil. And, and it was just this dogged determination to just stay in ketosis um, uh, with, you know, regardless of, of how, however they get there you know, whatever the means. And then, then I saw this very practical kind of carnivore side, and I guess I call it practical just because uh, it, it's, it's so simple um, that I can't help but think it's practical. And yet a lot of protein being consumed and, and where people were interested in ketones, there was still in fact very normal, healthy ketosis or healthy uh, as they were seeking it. And that, 
that led me to ask the question, what is protein really doing to insulin? Is it quite as clear cut as we think, which is what people always, the, the textbook answer to that is you eat protein and insulin will spike. And so it, within the strict keto realm, as you guys know, there was a, quite a fear of protein um, because of, of it um, potentially kicking someone out of ketosis. And that would hinge entirely on protein's ability to induce a substantial insulin response. And of course, the truth of it is um, there are, uh, there's a spectrum of insulin response with regards to dietary protein, and it all depends on um, glycemic status, that if a person has high glucose levels, then there is an insulin response to the protein. If someone has normal glucose levels and is not eating glucose, in other words, low carb or fasting, there is not an insulin response. So that was an interesting finding. But as I kind of took that dive, um, then I started facing all of this mTOR concern. And as you guys know, the fear is that protein activates mTOR, or, or not the, well, it is a fear. The fear is as follows in, in, in the following paradigm, that you eat protein, you activate mTOR, and that promotes cellular aging, and then the person gets older faster. So avoid animal protein and stay young. But mTOR, it's, of course, that's, that's ridiculously oversimplified, and it even goes against human data. Um, uh, there, where we see only correlational studies, of course, where well, I think it's beyond the age of 60 or 65, the people eating the highest level of protein were the ones who had the greatest, um, the healthiest living, uh, the lower mortality and the longer health span. Um, that absolutely flies in the face of this hypothesis that dietary protein is going to age you. But also mTOR, of course, is necessary for just maintenance of body mass itself. I don't mean fat mass necessarily, although it has an interesting relationship with fat mass that we can dive into. But if someone just wants to maintain their muscle and their bone, which we know beyond any doubt is a strong predictor of health span, boy, you better hope you're getting some mTOR activation. And so this whole idea of protein um, is something to fear because of activating mTOR, that's, I think, very misguided. Um, and uh, But, but, yeah, misguided, especially insofar as if there's any truth to the mTOR story, let's say that mTOR is relevant, it's going to promote cancer, it's going to promote aging potentially, and so you need to try to keep your mTOR in control. Well, then don't focus on protein, focus on insulin. Because if you take, let's say, muscle cells, this, this one study that I know has been published where it directly, directly compared insulin and leucine, which is the most potent mTOR activator, Insulin activated mTOR about three or four times more than leucine did. And that's relevant because you could have someone whose every waking moment is spent in a hyperinsulinemic state. You know, they wake up in the morning and insulin has finally settled down overnight. And what do they do? They eat some starchy, sugary breakfast. And two hours later, they eat the same kind of snack and then same kind of lunch on and on and on. So they go to bed 12 hours later or so. And every waking moment has been spent in this hyperinsulinemic mTOR activating state. And so don't blame the dietary protein, which you eat protein, you'll get this little spike of mTOR and it comes right back down. And then you eat protein later and mTOR comes back up and it comes right back down. That's not the same as the hyperinsulinemic chronic refined starch eater, which is so predominant these days. So anyway, that's my rant with mTOR. Uh, but again, it does have implications beyond um, not only muscle mass and, and uh, bone mass, lean mass, but also fat mass where mTOR activation promotes a disrupted growth of fat cells. 
and it makes fat cells get too big rather than um, so hypertrophic growth rather than um, hyperplastic growth, which is actually a healthier fat expansion. Anyway, that's that's a lot of mTOR talk. So stop me. Well, no, I think it's I think it's very interesting. I think most people would be, you know, because mTOR is kind of a new kid on the block. So, I mean, obviously, it's been around for gazillions of years, but I mean, our, our sort of understanding or our I wouldn't even say understanding, just our knowledge of his existence, you know, because obviously, like, like all things, we, we probably know vastly less than we think oh, we yeah. do. I know we had Mike Eads on the show talking about, I think, the, the fact that cyclic AMPK, will, you know, which, is, which is downstream or upstream from, from, from mTOR, is, you know, will ha- help to regulate that as well. And in the low-carb state, it tends to downregulate that somewhat as well. And that's a, you know, we talk, they talk about mTOR being a highly conserved you know, basic, basic uh, molecule that, that even the most basic life forms have, but then, you know, we've got something that's even more basic than that, perhaps, and, you know, with the, in the form of that cyclic AMPK. So, um, yeah, like AMPK, any- AMPK is like the, op, uh, yeah. the, the antagonist or, or antithesis. You have mTOR, which is purely anabolic um, for better and for worse, right? That's a double-edged sword. And then equally double-edged uh, is, is AMPK, which is uh, very, very catabolic. And without a doubt, one of AMPK's catabolic actions is to just simply put the um, slam the brakes on mTOR. So, so like I said, with all things, you know, and, and this is the thing that we, we, we get so reactionary, we find one thing is can be bad in certain contexts. So our answer is, okay, the answer must be zero. We see that with insulin. We see that with protein. We see that, you know, in, in all kinds of situations. And so, it, you know, it, it, if anything you learn, it's more nuanced, it's more subtle. There are so many more variables that go into this stuff. And, th- and that's why when people ask me about this particular biomarker or this particular phenomenon, I said, look, it's a huge complicated system. You got to look at the end results of this black box. You know, there's an input and there's an output. And what's going on in the inside is like gazillions of, you yeah. know, the metabolic yep. you know, cascade that occurs is just wildly, you know, infinite almost. And, and you know, so you, I really look at, you know, what's going on. And like, like when you talk about what's the bottom line, if you eat a lot of protein, you live longer. You you yep. live you 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 have a better quality of life, and and that's as simple as it needs to be for some people. But it's fun to talk about the metabolism, and as you know, uh, five years from now, whatever you're saying from now, we're going to modify. You know, yeah. you're going to say, wait a minute, we discovered something else, and now we know yep. this and this, and you know what that'll end up doing is generate you know new supplements, and people buy those, and you know it's kind of funny to watch this all play out. But I mean, in the end, it's like, what are you actually chasing? But, but anyway, that's my rant. Zach, you got any comments on this stuff? How does, MPAR, how does mTOR make you run farther, man? Yeah, I'll, let me see if I can dumb this down for us here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is all, all super interesting. It, it, if, if, um, if I'm understanding, uh, like, what can our take-home message to listeners be in regards to protein? Um, in terms of just, like, maybe target ranges, or should they not even worry about that and just kind of, be more intuitive with it where they're not so much worried about upper limits as long as they're not intentionally trying to go above and beyond what would be natural by just like focusing too heavily on super lean cuts of meat or something like that. Is there any type of, I guess, signs or um, intuitions that people can use when they're kind of deciding how much protein to eat or where their ceiling for that might be? Well, that's what a great question. I don't know whether there is an intuitive, like a, uh you know, an internal uh, sensor to say, well, hold on, um, uh, you've gotten enough protein. In fact, maybe someone would make the case that the internal signal would simply just be satiety with, it's something Ted Naiman's really um, been good at uh, promoting is this idea of the protein leverage hypothesis, 
um, that the idea is that you're basically going to eat until you've gotten enough protein. And, mm-hmm. and of course, that's going to come with other calories in the form of, of carbohydrate and, and fat. In fact, in the form of fuel, so to speak. Because I don't like it when people talk about protein as a fuel. Um, I've heard people say protein is a clean burning fuel or it's a slow burning fuel. And that's just not accurate. Um, protein is a building block. Um, sugar and uh, glucose and, and fat are fuels. Protein is structure. Um, and in, in, a, in an absolute uh, either incredible um, a diet where they're eating so much protein that that becomes converted to glucose and its fuel, or they're in such starvation that they are now breaking down their own amino acids for, for glucose. But again, it all goes back to glucose. So this idea of protein as a fuel, I don't really care for. So anyway, is there an internal sensor? Pro- I, don't, I don't know other than just satiety probably. But um, with regards to actual ranges, I have to um, mention Stuart Phillips his work from out east uh, in eastern Canada is the this idea that, um, importantly, that as we age, we need more protein. The ability to um, use dietary protein and maximize that um, for the sake of muscle protein synthesis is compromised. And so I think his number is around like one and a half um, grams per kilogram body weight. Now, what I, whenever I say that, um, getting around one and a half grams per kilogram body weight, I have to be quick to say that in the case of an obese person, that would be a phenomenal amount of protein. And so then they go with ideal body weight in that case. Uh, And that kind of, it really, but then someone who's kind of a low carb person would say, but wait a minute, we're supposed to eat mostly fat. If you're getting protein from real food, you're going to be getting plenty of fat. I don't think it's an accident that those two macronutrients come together overwhelmingly in nature. You can have sources of pure carbohydrate, essentially. I mean, there might be hints of fat and hints of protein in it, but it will essentially be a pure carbohydrate. And then when you look at any source of, of, of protein in, in nature, it comes with fat. In fact, is the, I don't know if there's an exception. You can have, um, and then in the case of pure fat, I mean, you can, you'd have to just isolate the fat from any kind of fiber. Like if it's a fruit fat, like coconut, avocado, olive, you know, it'd come with some fiber, but of course you just squish it and then you got the fat out of it. But when it comes to protein, um, it, it's, it's I, maybe nuts are kind of the exception um, where they, you do have some more starch there, but pretty much it's, it's going to be protein and fat. And I don't think it's an accident. I mean, I think the way I look at it, I think that's basically the body's way of saying, look, you're designed to operate, to consume these two things. Make sure you get them. But indeed, um, when, uh, when, when I kind of get heat for saying, oh, you're low carb, that's, uh, it goes against too much dogma. I, I sometimes just like to say, all right, let's just put all the clinical studies to the side. Um, is there such, I ask my student, I ask my students this sometimes, uh, is there such thing as essential fatty acids? Yep. And I'll have a hundred nodding heads. There are essential fatty acids. Are there essential amino acids? Yep. There are essential amino acids. And I'll say, what are the essential carbohydrates? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and then they have a hundred, I have a hundred like blank faces. Um, and they'll say, well, fiber is essential. It, it's not, it can be helpful potentially depending on the person. Um, any other nutrients that come from them, they can be helpful. I'm not saying they're overtly harmful. Some may be harmful, but there's nothing essential about it. We know there are human populations that thrive, not to mention, Sean, um, there, there are people that thrive and have for generations um, without really eating carbohydrates. But again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want someone to listen to this and say, okay, Ben, Dr. Professor Bickman saying don't eat carbohydrates. I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying, this is what I'm saying. It's a shame that we have so wildly focused our nutritional information on the one macronutrient that is actually not essential. That to me is tragic. We should be focusing on the two things we need and that we know we need, not on the one we know we don't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I think too, like um, one thing, I, when just to just to follow up on my first or my question with like the protein. Yeah, I really took that off. Topic. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, I think if I'm remembering right, I think I was following um, Bill Agakos on Twitter and he was saying something about a lot of the studies that are done on protein overfeeding is really hard because a lot of times the people that they're studying end up failing on it because it's really difficult to eat so much protein where you just keep eating it after your body kind of gives you the signals that you should be not eating any more protein. So it governs itself to a degree. Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of that strong satiety signal, the body just being more and more uh, revolted at the idea of trying to force more protein when it knows it's gotten enough. We've got uh, coming up, I think later this month, we've got uh, Professor uh, Jose Antonio coming on. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with his, his work. And I know he's shown uh, studies where I think it's been four grams per kilogram of protein and well tolerated, no problems whatsoever. And, you know, the, the result was that was, you know, interestingly, no gain in fat mass, you know, yeah. even though they're eating something like 800 extra calories a day. And preservation and, and, and improvement in lean body mass with no issues whatsoever. So I'm not sure. I mean, I know there's a theoretical limit, upper limit to protein consumption when we talk about calories per, you know, percentage of calories. Uh, and it's something around 35, 40%. Some people argue, you know, some people will say that like early hominids like the Neanderthals had anatomic adaptations where they, you know, they had a bigger uh, thorax to, to contain larger livers and larger kidneys because they were mm-hmm. processing probably even more meat than, than early modern humans were eating. And so it's kind of interesting, but I mean, you know, we can, all, we all, we just have to look at, you know, some of the modi- modern bodybuilders that, that, that yep. eat, I mean, God awful amounts. I mean, they're eating five, 600 grams of, of, of protein a day and they're not having any issues with regard to acute problems with protein toxicity. No, and I don't think that's, uh, that's right. I think as long as the person has sufficient calories, they're not going to have a protein toxicity in general. Um, but I think it's important to note that, that there are studies to show more, uh, higher, higher rates than say I mentioned that one gram per kilogram. Uh, and, and I should be quick to mention that was the Stuart Stewart's work that I hate to put words in his mouth, but I believe it was simply to look at what is the um, kind of minimum I think, dose yeah. response. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then could there be enhanced beyond that? I don't know. I don't know if he asked that, but it, I think what he was trying to say was basically the recommendations that we have in place are insufficient. If not for the entire population, certainly for the elderly population. Yeah. We had Stuart on the show uh, a while back and, and, you know, obviously this tremendous guy around protein metabolism, but you know, I think he was saying 1.6 grams per kilo seems to be a pretty nice level for, which is about double what the recommendation, I think it's 0.8 is what the recommendations are. And so that's double just for kind of an average sedentary person, I think. And then I think, you know, obviously someone engaging in trying to put on muscle or heavy, heavy athletics and particularly endurance running because probably, as you said, it's structure and all that running that Zach's doing is probably beating up, some of his structure. Oh, so, yeah. he has to, so he has to uh, work extra hard nutritionally to get that, you know, get that refilled. In fact, so. you know, what's interesting about this whole conversation with protein, I, as you guys know, um, uh, me, I'm actually not, I've not been one really pounding the drum on protein. I've certainly um, emphasized its relevance, but that's that and saturated fat is the one thing that 
the vegetarians or vegans maybe more 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 accurately put has have have gotten upset when i'm when i've gotten upset emails it's all from from a vegetarian it's always this or, or vegan more so it's always protein and saturated fat uh, but the protein thing it always is so puzzling to me because uh, i guess because they don't want to admit that if protein's necessary and helpful then then you have to acknowledge that the best source is animal protein and there's no way around that you can kind of sugarcoat that any way you'd like and nothing is comparable to animal protein. Maybe that's just too inconvenient, but but boy, it's it's unfortunate because whenever I talk about protein or even saturated fat, I'm never trying to actually say eat meat, despite my affection for it and my insistence that it's healthy for humans. But I always kind of hope that there's just a common ground where I can just tell a vegan or a carnivore and say, look, let's just control insulin, and and, and that can be the common ground. But they don't. In my experience, it's it's the very rare vegan that wants to concede and say, okay, fine. You know, they can step away from it. Anyway, Sean, me talking about some upset um, vegans, uh, I, I of course don't know a fraction of what you have to deal with. So I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop now. Yeah, you don't, you don't want the wrath of the, the vegan. No, no, I don't, I don't. It's, it's, it's entertaining sometimes, but sometimes it's a little frustrating. Um, controlling insulin. So what's the best way to do that? Do we have, what, what are the, what are the, what are the, uh, you know, what does the average person need to do to control their insulin levels? Yeah, boy, it's so, it's so, it's so simple, uh, really just watching processed foods and, and sugar. <clears throat> to me, it is, it is so remarkable that it isn't more standard care. If you have someone who's struggling with type two diabetes or on that spectrum, and of course, insulin resistance is pre-diabetes, most people with prediabetes will get to type 2 diabetes within just a few years. It is, if we're looking at this as a disease where someone's trying to control their glucose, rather than before we give them a drug that can help their body clear the glucose out, why don't we actually just stop a moment and say, well, what happens if we just put less glucose in? You know, rather than drug the glucose out, let's put less glucose in. It is so intuitive and it is so effective as, as multiple publications have indicated. And indeed, that was my first steps in the low carb. My first steps were finally saying, okay, I'm only gonna look at human clinical data now to, to see what is the best for insulin resistance because that's my main area of research. And that's when the whole house of cards started to fall down where I realized, wow, we've been bagging fat and telling these people to eat whole grains and high carb diets and the data simply didn't back it up. In fact, we had in 1989, Gerald Reven actually put type 2 diabetics on the kind of high carb, moderate sugar, low fat American Diabetes Association diet, and they got worse. I mean, we knew it. We've known it for 30 years. They got worse. And, and, and we're still kind of saying the same nonsense. I mean, there are hints in the American Diabetes Association. There are hints that it is acknowledging more and more the relevance and even benefits of low carb diet. But to me, it's a shame that that is not actual step number one that before you're looking at all these wonderful little drugs, these GLP-1 inhibitors, the DPP uh, regulators, let's just put them on a low-carb diet and see what happens. Yeah, that would be uh, that, that would seem to make sense to me. I mean, obviously, it, it, it's not as profitable to do that. So maybe there's, it some, is not. there's, there's, right. there's, some, bias, there's some conflict of interest of that stuff. Um, one of the things when, when we talk about diabetic pathophysiology, one of the things I often hear coming out of the vegan camps is that it is saturated fat that is uh, causing, uh, I guess they're saying it's uh, intracellular fat accumulation, and that's blocking the, the action of either insulin or the ability to, 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 to take up glucose. What are your thoughts on that, yeah. on that proposed mechanism? Yeah, so there is some truth there. 
Um, and and I've, only, I've even contributed to that truth. My main postdoctoral fellowship publication, um, when I was working out of um, Singapore with Duke Medical School um, 10 years ago, my, that main paper was looking at how saturated fats activate a so-called inflammatory pathway and then results in the production of uh, a type of a lipid called ceramides, which is a sphingolipid, and then how ceramides would directly antagonize the insulin signaling pathway. So very directly blocking insulin from working. And, and so I actually get quite delighted when a vegan um, challenges me on that because I've literally published some of those papers. Um, uh, but the absolute necessary um, question to ask is, does eating saturated fat mean more saturated fat in the blood? And that does not happen. So uh, Volek and Finney, you know, everyone always invokes Volek and Finney. They published a paper that looked at saturated fats in the blood, even though this group, the, the low carb, high fat group was eating about three or four times more saturated fat than the low fat group. They had no more saturated fat in the blood than the other group did. And so it, you, the, both of these ideas are true and yet they're not mutually exclusive. This is not some paradox. We have to look at the, the system or the model. So in my studies and my colleagues, we were treating cells directly with saturated fat. We were literally just putting palmitate on the cells, or we were literally fusing, infusing palmitate into the rodents or into humans has been done by other labs. And yep, they become insulin resistant. However, that's not the same as eating it. So shame on, shame on me for once upon a time, um, thinking that these two systems, these two models, a cell or a human eating it were comparable. Cause my, I'm, I'm a physiologist. And so I should have been able to step back and appreciate the fact that, wait a minute, dumping saturated fat onto cells is not the same as eating saturated fat. And in that case, it, it simply, it doesn't happen in, in the human who's eating saturated fat. The actual saturated fat levels in the blood are not higher. And that is so important because you can take a diet like the DASH diet, which everyone just raves about, right? I think, was that rated the, the best diet? Like yeah, I think it has been consistently over a number of yeah, years. Yeah, so everyone raves about the DASH diet, and it's a low-saturated fat, low-processed low um, sugar type diet, low, low salt. And, of course, they always just say, well, it's the salt and it's the fat. A little, little appreciating that it's also low sugar, at least it's supposed to be. There was a study done a number of years ago that took people on the conventional DASH diet and put a subset of people on an altered DASH diet, which was a high-fat DASH diet, including saturated fat. And guess who was better? the DASH diet that was eating more fat, even though they're eating more saturated fat, their blood pressure got better, the blood lipids got better for whatever benefit or value blood lipids actually provide. That's very debatable. But nevertheless, they got better even by these conventional clinical markers. Um, the group that was eating more fat did just fine. And in fact, if we speak about fat, to me, it's the conversation really ought to be on, on, on uh, omega-6, the linoleic acid, which is far more pathogenic than saturated fat could ever be. Let me, let me just go back, Ben, because you said that, you know, eating saturated fat doesn't cause an increase in either cellular or serum levels of saturated fat. Do we know what does potentially raise saturate fat in the blood or has that not been determined yet? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, uh, insulin does. Insulin very potently will activate lipogenesis in the liver and the main product of lipogenesis from the liver is palmitate. And so when people want to look at, well, where's all this saturated fat coming from? It's not from the fat they're eating. It's the fat that they're making. And insulin tells the liver to make fat. It'll tell the liver, hey, look, you got all these carbons coming in, turn them into palmitate and then just pump them out into the blood. And then that palmitate will go wherever it needs to go. But even then the story can't end with saturated fat. There is some relevance to inflammation 
as part of this process, at least with regards to ceramides. But, but nevertheless, yeah, if, if someone is worried with their saturated fat in the blood, then they need to look at their, um, they need to look at their insulin. And, and indeed, even in the absence of, of increasing palmitate, you can take straight muscle cells or liver cells and just treat them with insulin for a, a period of time, even though physiological dose, and they'll get insulin resistant. Back to this idea that too much insulin causes insulin resistance, also through ceramide accumulation. In fact, it was a publication from my lab just uh, in 2017. So it still kind of hijacks that same so-called lipotoxic um, mediator, ceramides, whereas in one case, it can come from inflammation, it can come from saturated fat, it can also just come from insulin itself. All the more reason to just be make sure someone's controlling carbohydrates. I'm not saying don't eat any, um, cause that's just, I don't want to say that just because it's too polarizing for too many people. If, if I say that, then they, then they just say, well, I don't want to hear anything he has to say. It's all nonsense. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, be smart about it. And that if it comes in a bag or a box with a barcode, don't eat it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating to me to see, you know, these people that, you know, I've, I've, I've encountered thousands of people on this, you know, this crazy carnivore diet. And one of the, the more common things that I see are a pretty pr profound drop in inflammatory markers, yeah. both, both lab markers with looking at things like CRC record protein. And then clinically, there, there are this clinical symptoms of inflammation going at vis-a-vis -vis things like joint pain. But additionally, we see, you know, the insulin levels come down too. So, I mean, it's, you know, when we talk about controlling insulin, this is, you know, I, I, one of the problems in medicine in general is we just don't even measure it. You know, most people come, no. with, most doctors never measure insulin. They don't know, even, even, even endocrinologists are treating diabetes or they're, what's your glucose, what's your A1C? They don't even know what the insulin is. And so, yeah, it's a great tragedy of diabetes. Something that if there's any drum I ever beat, it is, we can't keep looking at diabetes as a glucose disease. Di both type one and type two, those are insulin diseases. And in that case, they're diseases of opposites. So let's not treat them with the same drug. But with regards to inflammation and you seeing drops across all these countless carnivores that are kind of letting, it's just kind of sharing their data with you. One reason that doesn't surprise me is that meat is so simple. It, it is so, so pure. I mean, there's not, there's no steps in how it's been processed. And I think a lot of the reduction in inflammation, I, I think without knowing mechanisms here, I, I bet part of it is simply that there are sensitivities that this person has to certain foods that they just aren't aware of, that it's so subtle that it doesn't, it's not some obvious detection. It's not some obvious response to, to make them aware of it, but they have inadvertently started cutting out a food they're, they're sensitive to um, and just now focusing on these kind of pure foods like eggs and, and beef. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal story behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate. I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year in route to breaking the 100 mile american record at the desert solstice track invitational the only hiccup that i have had with using yerba mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup it i usually had to either kind of pre-make the yerba mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things 
so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of Yerba Mate in training and races. And uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of Yerba Mate and connected me with a product called Unimate, which makes kind of an instant single serving package of the tea. With, with these single serving packs, I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly even during a race or during a training run without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me. And I actually even used it at the Tunnel Hill 100 mile this last fall where I ran the, the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm behind the product. If you'd like to try it out, please head over to unicity.com forward slash HPO. That's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash HPO to get $3 off a seven pack or $10 off a 30 pack of Unimate. Thanks again. Now back to the show. I think there's a lot to it. Let's go back to the, the Omega-6 stuff because I think that's fascinating. I think we need to beat that drum a little harder. You know, I saw a study, I think, Stefan Guillenay did a study in 2015 looking at, I think, the accumulation of linoleic acid in human yep. tissues. Uh, and it's gone up something like, I don't know, some ridiculous amount, 50% over the last 50 years in, in, in human tissue biopsies. When you, when you actually biopsy adipose tissue in humans, we see that our fatty acid composition has changed dramatically. And not only that, those things tend to stay around in the body for a long time, for, for even a couple of years potentially. So yeah. what is the problem with, with all this omega-6? And what does it do uh, from, a, from a clinical standpoint, but, more, but probably more in your wheelhouse, metabolically and, and, and on a cellular level? Yeah, you know, I think that study, I, we ought to, I, I, I think it's wonderful that you acknowledge that study, how well done it was. That study by Stefan or Stephen, whatever, however you say his name, I don't know him personally, so I don't know. Um, it was so, so enlightening. Uh, and I have to acknowledge Tucker Goodrich, a guy who's just a, a PubMed warrior, um, who's become so familiar with this kind of research. He's actually been really helpful for me personally. Uh, but so what I say, I kind of say from what I've learned from him. Uh, but yeah, the omega-6s, the linoleic acid is, is so readily oxidized. And it becomes these, uh, a lipid peroxide, which is so dangerous because a lipid can so freely move around. And it, it can bump into whatever kind of molecule it wants and pass on this reactive oxygen, um, uh, the, this, this stress, this oxidative stress to whatever molecule it bumps into. But one of the products of this peroxidation of linoleic acid is a molecule called 4-HNE. And 4-HNE is known to force a fat cell into a pathological growth. So if someone's gaining fat mass, you have two guys and they're both getting fat. One of them could be getting, well, either. So one guy's getting fat because his fat cells are hyperplastic. They're multiplying, but they're all staying small. But there's just more of them. The other guy is getting fat through hypertrophy. So relatively fewer fat cells and they're all bigger. That's important because uh, that lipid droplet, as it gets so big, one, not only is, do they, does the fat tissue become slightly hypoxic as they just get too big for their own good, essentially, 
And so they, they become a little hypoxic, which is very pro-inflammatory, and there's compromised access to the actual lipid droplet itself. So these two guys are getting fat, one through hyperplasia, one through hypertrophy. Fatter, fatter, fatter. This guy who's getting fat through hyper, uh, hypertrophy, he usually will stop getting fat. His body will kind of cap out a little earlier. The guy getting through uh, fat through hyperplasia keeps getting fat. What's interesting, though, paradoxically, the guy who's getting fat through hypertrophied fat cells, which again can happen, we know, because of 4-HNE, which again we know is a product of linoleic acid consumption, that guy starts to get diabetes or insulin resistance much, much earlier than the other guy. So this guy keeps getting fat, fat, fat. He doesn't look good in his Speedo, but boy, he's feeling fine. This guy's not, you know, he's, he's a little relatively leaner than the other guy, but he is sick. That not only has relevance just with what we eat, here, I mean, helping people just be mindful of the fact that with regards to healthy fat growth, which, which is good to know because we all need fat. We're all going to get fat leaner or fatter at different times in life. So if we're going to get fat, let's at least do it a healthy way. Avoid these seed oils, especially sunflower oil, which has become, I think, I think from what I have heard in a study that I found, it is the single most in, in the American diet, in the American, in fact, it's probably even worse in China. Um, and I'll come back to that idea in a moment. The single most common source of fat, like if we look at what are all the fats someone's eating, what's the main fat by calorie or by amount? It's, sun, it's uh, soybean oil. Soybean oil is just, it has become the main fat that we eat. And that matters. Uh, it also means we're eating more fake food because that's where you get it from. But <clears throat> I just got back from my sabbatical in Asia, in Singapore, and it was awesome. I was able to do some work with Duke on short-chain fatty acids and also consult with a, a company that Zach knows uh, called Unicity. And uh, on the side, it was a wonderful situation. But in, in one of Singapore's, one of the reasons Singapore is so interested in diabetes, well, two reasons. Well, one, they are the, uh, I think the 11th most diabetic country in the world, more than the U.S., and you look where the diabetes epidemic, even per capita, is becoming so problematic. It's the Middle East, and it is in Asia. And this is maybe partly genetic. We do know that there are inherent genetic differences between ethnicities where people store fat. Uh, a Chinese guy will store more fat in his liver, for example, than a Northern European Caucasian guy will. But th they also, these like a Chinese ethnicity, the prominent, predominant ethnicity in Singapore, which is a country that we just love, my family and I, my second daughter was born there um, when we lived there years ago. Uh, they, uh, they get metabolic um, disturbances at much lower BMIs, which has actually resulted in this discussion of we need to have different BMI categories across the different ethnicities because trying to apply the Caucasian BMI to an Asian, a Caucasian is kind of barely overweight uh, at their BMI and they're feeling relatively still healthy. If you have a Chinese man who gets to that same BMI level, it's like he's morbidly obese, even though he looks all right for his body type because of the way the fat cells are growing, um, presumably through hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia, he's getting sicker much earlier. So that's a kind of long-winded explanation of the relevance of linoleic acid. But, but the, the relevance goes beyond fat cell growth, including... Um, mitochondrial health in general, and that has implications with regards to cancer. And Thomas Seafried out of Boston has really looked at that a, a great deal. It also has relevance with oxidative stress in response to UV exposure in the skin, uh, apparently, and there's evidence to support that. Nevertheless, um, my fear of linoleic acid is so um, 
pronounced that I would, boy, if, I mean, gun to the head. If someone says eat sugar or eat sunflower or soybean oil, um, I don't know. That, that'd be a toss up. <laughs> I mean, sugar, I mean, and I, I, man, I, I'm an absolute opponent of sugar. Um, but I just appreciate more and more just how genuinely toxic. And that's not a word I like to use very readily as a scientist, but how toxic linoleic acid is. Uh, boy, I, I would maybe maybe pick the sugar if I had to. I mean, gun to the head. Yeah, if I can jump in just real quick, I think it's it's interesting to me because I think when we just look at kind of nutrition trends and you know where some of the the focus has gone over the last couple decades, it seems like with a lot of the stuff we tend to kind of switch gears every once in a while and almost hyper focus on one thing and then uh ultimately it kind of maybe it's a little bit of overcorrection and start to demonize it and uh, it it becomes like a situation of like what we were talking about earlier where it's a zero intake kind of thing or like everyone needs to eliminate this when in reality it's a lot more of an individual like dosage and contact situation which is kind of how i see some of the more like carbohydrate or sugar type yeah. sources is a massive individual dosage contact situation. Like even within myself, if I look at myself in isolation, like sugar consumption is heavily dependent upon what I'm doing. Like if I'm recovering from a big effort and not working out much, um, my, my threshold for that sort of a fuel source is entirely different than say if I'm running for 12 hours consecutively. Yeah, right. Um, so I think there's like, there, there's there's a little bit of that going on there where I think people aren't always diving deep enough, but uh, it seems like with the omega-6s and some of these industrialized seed oils, to a degree, I think the dosage context, it's like, if anything, it's so low that you almost have to try to avoid it altogether in order to stay within the threshold. Yeah, and you can't, you can't avoid it altogether. Uh, like mm -hmm. anyone who's eating eggs or meat of any kind, you're getting it. And that's, that's good because we do absolutely, you need linoleic acid. Linoleic acid and alpha linoleic acid are, are the essential fatty acids. So you need them. But it's so important that in nature, that ratio will always be pretty darn friendly. But our ratio of kind of almost like a 20 to 1 more omega-6 than omega-3, omega-3 has to compete. That alpha linoleic acid, at least, has to compete for the same metabolic pathways as the linoleic acid in order to get metabolized with in the alpha the omega-3 side to epa and dha which are the actual functional part uh, functional omega-3 molecules and so if your scale is tipped so heavily in favor of omega-6 that omega-3 just can't really ever even get in to get metabolized down the pathway because they're competing um so nevertheless yeah in nature you're going to get both and i would submit that you're going to get them in a ratio that that we're designed to consume uh, but then in of course outside of nature in these processed foods um there's there's no balance to them whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's an important point for people to realize that, that omega six are essential. You have to have some, and you know, like you said, natural foods like meat, eggs, you know, stuff like that, put you in a pretty good position for yep. that ratio. Well, let's talk about so let's talk about mitochondria, uh, Ben. If you don't mind, let's talk about what does it mean to have a healthy mitochondria, both in function and number, because there's some thought about you know having more mitochondria in the cell is potentially a good thing. How does that impact our health, longevity? And what are the things that sort of, you know, modulate those things? But, you know, not only diet, but other, other things we can do to, to, to improve our mitochondrial uh, number and health. 
Yeah, yes. Um, there are a number of known interventions to, to increase mitochondrial number, and that's a process called mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, one of the ways of exercise, we have to say, that's just the elephant in the room. So I have to acknowledge exercise. It doesn't matter what someone does. If they just do something, just challenge the muscle at all, in any way, you're going to enhance, you're going to activate mitochondrial biogenesis. Some unexpected things, though, are things like fat increases it, especially um, short-chain fatty acids and ketones. Ketones are known to potently activate mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, uh, insulin has a bit of a um, kind of two, two, there's two aspects with regards to insulin's regulation. Insulin is necessary or insulin does promote just normal insulin presence does promote mitochondrial function. That's not surprising. Insulin is necessary for life, but too much insulin will result in, like I'd mentioned earlier, this, this accumulation of ceramides. And ceramides, um, we published this paper in 2015, maybe, my first PhD student that was part of her dissertation. We found that ceramides actually not necessarily challenged mitochondrial number, but they forced the mitochondria into this different state. So briefly, a, a brief primer, mitochondrial are, the mitochondria are very dynamic organelles. They are, they're moving around, they're fusing into these long reticular stringy structures. And indeed the, the word mitos means thread. So they're, they're very fused, long reticular organelles and then they can undergo fission. And then there are these distinct little things that you see in the textbooks more commonly, like a little bean shaped thing. Neither of those is inherently bad. You need both. You know, it'll undergo fission when the cell's gonna divide. When the cell's growing, it'll promote more fusion. But we found that ceramides will take the cell and force the muscle cells into the state of sustained mitochondrial fission. And that was relevant because per unit oxygen, when the mitochondria are taking in the oxygen, we looked at how well the mitochondria were working in this state of forced sustained fission. And their ability to create ATP per unit oxygen consumed was compromised. So it was not making as much actual energetic molecule for the muscle to use in the form of ATP. And it was making more reactive oxygen species per unit oxygen consumed. And so just overall number of mitochondria didn't tell the whole story. It was, well, what was the state of the mitochondria? Were they allowed to be dynamic when they can flux between these two fusion or fission states? Or in the case of this accumulation of this lipotoxic ceramide, it forced this fission state. Uh, and and there, in general, if you had to pick one fusion or fission for general metabolic health, the majority of evidence suggests that fusion is going to be overall more favorable than fission. And they've done this through numerous knockout um, rodents, gene knockout rodents and, and drugs where you're inhibiting fusion. And if they force or fission one way or the other, if you force the cell to stay in fission, then it's going to be, uh, the mitochondria will not be as favorable. But <clears throat> also what we found and what I'm, I think I'm going to have the topic of my low-carb talk at, in Denver in two months, it's going to be looking at the, the, the disparate effect of ketones on how they regulate mitochondria in muscle tissue versus fat tissue. But in essence, in essence, very, very briefly, ketones make uh, help uh, muscle mitochondria work more efficiently. And by that, I mean it produces more ATP per unit oxygen consumed. And in the adipocyte, it has the mitochondria work less efficiently, which actually ends up being a kind of favorable situation where per unit oxygen consumed or nutrient like glucose or lipid, it produces less ATP. So less energy 
and it creates more heat, which is that sign of inefficiency. So I'm calling it inefficiency, but in reality, in our hypercaloric environment, it ends up being a pretty favorable overall dynamic, which is why I really do think you can say that ketones do offer a metabolic advantage. It's, it's promoting more tightly coupled mitochondria, so more ATP um, uh, you know, per nutrient and per oxygen consumed, as opposed to the adipocyte where the ketones are promoting less um, coupled um, or more uncoupled mitochondrial state, which is you know, less ATP produced per nutrient and oxygen consumed and more heat. Um, overall. Anyway, I, if that, hopefully that makes some sense. I'm sure, I'm sure it does. Hopefully listeners make sense of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I wasn't aware they had, they, they alternated between a fusion fission thing. That's very interesting. Let me ask you, uh, so ketones exercise, uh, keeping your insulin at a, at a, I, I would say physiologically normal level, you know, these yep. would be, you know, whole foods makes sense. And then, you know, things like uh, ceramides accumulating are going to are going to be a problem for that. Is there anything else else that can be problematic for the mitochondria? I'm sure maybe smoking. Maybe uh, does fructose have a you know glycation of these things? Does that have an impact? What, what are your thoughts on what's going to beat up your mitochondria? Yeah, yeah, Sean, boy, these are great questions. And, and my um, so some of these questions uh, I can answer um, very capably. So with regards to cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke, actually, to be honest, cigarette smoke and even fructose, they, they have some redundancies. So we know that cigarette smoke activates uh, a pathway um, called, um, well, activates a receptor. It, it results in the production of advanced glycation end products. And that will bind the receptor for advanced glycation end products, which is called RAGE. And then RAGE is very redundant to the pathway that I kind of alluded to earlier, this inflammatory pathway known as TLR4 they converge just a few steps down from the cell surface. Rage getting activated, TLR4 getting activated. A few steps down and that pathway meets. And then the same end result is gonna be ceramide accumulation. And interestingly, you mentioning cigarette smoke and fructose, both of them result in a pretty substantial increase in advanced glycation end products. I have a colleague at the end of the hallway here who is a lung inflammation whiz and his whole thing is advanced glycation end products and wouldn't, from cigarette smoke. And so we published a paper looking at how cigarette smoke causes insulin resistance because of the accumulation of ceramides. So I hate to keep beating that drum, but ceramides does become relevant again. And then with regards to fructose, fructose actually increases advanced glycation end products. If I remember, it's six or seven times more readily than glucose does. I mean, which is almost mind boggling, right? We're thinking, but wait a minute, we're actually looking at glyco gly glycation of the molecule. How can fructose do it more? It, it does. Yeah, I mean, I think, the, and I think the implications for that is, you know, just looking at, at that, that statement alone that fructate, fructose is much more potently glycating than glucose is. And if you look at like say traditional Asian populations where people say, well, they eat a lot of white rice, well, white rice is, you know, you know, basically it's glucose. Yeah. Whereas, you know, what we're seeing now is, is more sucrose, which is obviously 50-50. And mm -hmm. if you add high fructose corn syrup in there, then that ratio goes even higher towards fructose. Yeah. So I think that maybe explain why some of these populations in Asia could eat a relatively glucose-rich diet, you know, and not develop all these diseases like we're seeing now when, you know, now the dominant thing tends to be sucrose and, and high fructose corn syrup and more fructose dominant. And so it's kind of interesting, again, yeah. to put in what is damage in, in, in the glycation. You know, this goes back to diabetes. Is it the, it's a gly, advanced glycation of the, of the uh, you know, the uh, renal tubules and the nephrons yeah. and the vasculature and the retinal blood vessels and so on and so forth. It's causing the damage. It's the glycation. It's not necessarily the glucose. And I think 
probably, I mean, I don't know what in, insulin's impact is on glycation. Maybe you, maybe you know something about that, but perhaps it has a role there as well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know that neuropathies, which which were classically looked at as strictly a, uh, not not strictly, but largely a consequence of the hyperglycemia and and as you're mentioning the advanced glycation end products. Um, and that damaging the, the neurons, we know that you can detect neuropathy before glucose levels demonstrably change. Um, but before we leave mitochondria, I actually, um, with Zach, I, I, I remember um, conversations with Zach a while ago, uh, there is a molecule, another molecule that can promote mitochondrial um, biogenesis, it's a, a, a chlorogenic acids. And this is something that people can just eat in the diet. Uh, you get it from things like coffee and green tea, um, some time ago, Zach had mentioned um, taking a, uh, a yerba mate. And, and so then I'd said, I was consulting with the supplement company and I said, hey, Zach, you got to try this. This company, Unicity, had this refined, um, like a kind of purified form of yerba mate. And part of the advantage there is that the amount of chlorogenic acids, again, these activators of mitochondrial biogenesis, it had, I think it's roughly 200 times more than, than the average cup of coffee. So very potent source of chlorogenic acids. And those are known, chlorogenic acids are known to not only increase mitochondrial biogenesis, but also they will enhance um, just simple fatty acid oxidation by about 25%. And so this actual known demonstrable shift in fuel use, because you can use, you can burn glucose without touching the mitochondria. If you want to burn any fat, you must absolutely utilize the mitochondria. And so it's no surprise that as this molecule is enhancing mitochondrial content, it was also increasing the body's ability to use fat for fuel. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I didn't no, mean to please. I want to hear your experience with it. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about this because it was actually, I think, a pretty unique experience is that uh, um, our listeners will maybe have at least a little bit of a preface to this because I did record a, an ad for one of for our shows that will come out on a couple episodes before this one. And I, I highlight a little bit of my experience with it because I like to uh, kind of share the authenticity behind products that we kind of get behind or use ourselves. And, uh, I guess the, the longer version of the, of this story is, uh, um, I think it was in 2015 was the first time I ever really tried yerba mate tea. And I, I don't even remember why or how I came across it, but what, I, what really sticks out in my mind is, um, I'd been a coffee drinker since, since college. So I, I had plenty of experience with caffeine. The first thing I really noticed with yerba mate was it, it was hard for me to describe it, it probably took me over a year to figure out how to describe it but it was like the way I, I tell people now is it's almost like this calm sense of energy that you kind of get from drinking yerba mate versus a cup of coffee which I would describe as more of an abrupt punch of energy which in return kind of makes the return from that punch maybe feel a little more drastic when you come back down to normal levels because it's just such a spike in, in comparison to the kind of the calm sense of energy that I would feel when I would drink like a cup of yerba mate. And for me, like when I started extrapolating that forward into kind of how I could use that from a training and racing standpoint, it made a whole lot of sense because, you know, I'm not going out there and, and ripping off an 800 meter as fast as I can. Uh, you know, I'm out there all day when I'm trying to perform. So I, I, I'm going to utilize caffeine as an additive, which I think is a very potent additive for endurance. Um, I want it to give me that sense of alertness, but I don't want it to peak me so much that I do something stupid and <laughs> go out too hard or, you know, hammer for a while and then pay for it on the back end more or less. Um, 
and that's kind of how I started using it actually. And it was, it was great because it would, I could replace it. I could replace like a morning cup of coffee with that. And I would feel like kind of that same initial, like, okay, let's get going, but not to the degree where I felt like I was going to just redline right out the gate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the biggest issue I've had with it, um, until now has just been just the logistics of it. Cause uh, I mean, anyone who's drank yerba mate traditionally knows it's, you know, you get like a gourd and then you put yeah. the yerba mate leaf in there and you add water and you have a straw that kind of sucks the water out and filters away the leaves. Um, and even if you prepare it with like a traditional tea bag or something like that, you know, it's still a process. And when you're out there, when I'm out there in the middle of the long run or in the middle of a race, I'm obviously not going to be brewing up yerba mate. <laughs> um, so I either have to prepare it way ahead of time or you can buy them in like cans and stuff like that, which is also a logistical issue if you're flying, if you're trying to transport it by foot. And then most of those canned versions too, they add a bunch of other stuff to it. Most of them have some kind of sugar added too, which, which in a race, it wasn't as big of a deal because I'm usually like trickling in small amounts of carb during a race. Um, but then after we had episode 13 with you, Ben, you had reached out to me and I think you maybe had come across a race report or a podcast. I had talked about it and you, you showed me the Unicity's version that they call Unimate. And it's essentially like a, the way I've been describing is it's kind of like an instant tea where the powder dissolves as opposed to just steeps. And they come in these tiny little sachets where they're like, I mean, I could easily carry 10 of those on me if I wanted to, I wouldn't even know they were there. So like, just adding those mid run or mid race, or if I'm bringing them to a race and I have a crew, it's like very easy for them to kind of put that in my bottle or I put in my bottle myself and I get some of that yerba mate form of energy as opposed to any other caffeine stuff. And it's been, it's been awesome so far. Fact, been, didn't you take, didn't you take 10? I mean, I just, I'm yeah. trying to remember what you, yeah. like what your picture was on Instagram or something. <laughs> remarkable stack During, during Tunnel Hill 100 Mile, um, I ran 12 hours and eight minutes there, and it's, it, w- it was recorded as the fastest, fastest recorded time on a trail for 100 miles, and it was actually the fastest outright 100 miler of 2018. Um, yeah, I think I had like 10 of them over the course of the day. That's remarkable. I was just having, I was having about a, it was cold enough that day where I wasn't hydrating as much as I would in hotter events, but mm-hmm. I was taking in at least a full bottle an hour. And I think I probably had about one of those in yeah, a bottle. bottle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does that stuff taste, Zach? I've never had yerba mate tea, but uh, I mean, does it, I mean, it's bitter. Yeah, it, oh, it is. Um, yeah. The, if when I would make when I would make it brew, or when I brew it, a lot of times I'll brew it and then I'll I'll put maybe like some coconut milk or heavy whipping cream in it, and that kind of brings brings the flavor a little more, a little better. The the sachets that that uh, unamate has. I like the way those taste. Like I don't add anything to that. I just I'm the same. one of them in a bottle, sometimes two, if it's like um, going to replace a cup of coffee or something like that. And then, yeah, I just shake it up and go. I think exactly. a whole lot. you'll oh. get a kick out of it. There's another, a new one coming out that has uh, a powdered coconut oil. Oh, uh, really? Huh. Yeah. You'll like it a lot. It's just a slightly, like you're talking about this kind of creamier version that you'll do. There's a new version. Anyway. Yeah. There's a new one coming out like that. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, Ben, let me ask you another, uh, just as another thing, um, when we talk about mitochondrial function, can you talk about the role of carnitine? Uh, that is something that, you know, I've seen that, you know, when we talk about these problems with problematic fats, you know, yep. like, like H&E, you know, and uh, yep. ceramides. I know that carnitine may have a role in mitigating that or, or in increasing the function of that. And can you, can you talk about that? Because carnitine is something that we 
have, but we can get low on that if we're not, you know, taking enough in dietarily. So what, what's yeah. going on with carnitine? Yeah. So carnitine is, uh, required as a as a transporter <clears throat> if you have if you want to use fat for fuel you have to have this carnitine shuttle system kind of in place the mitochondria you don't want the fat to just willy-nilly just come rolling in or rolling out mind you there's and so there's process of allowing it to come into the into the cell the lipid the, the fatty acid will basically get tagged when it comes into the cell just to prevent it from just floating around anywhere it wants and this tag or it's kind of like you've given it a ticket and now it has like a one-way ticket into the mitochondria through the doors that essentially carnitine allows to open up. And so carnit because carnitine is so essential for um, oxidation of fats in the mitochondria, uh, we do make carnitine, but there, there I have found published clinical instances of carnitine deficiency. And the reason that matters is that you get carnitine from eating meat well beef especially uh the 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 dark color of the of the meat is indicative of the mitochondria that you're eating and the, those mitochondria will have carnitine and you'll eat that carnitine and uh, if you don't have enough carnitine you cannot oxidize lipids and for the for the ketone chasers that are listening if you don't have enough carnitine you can't make ketones because that is an oxidative process where essentially the mitochondria in the liver are burning through fat at such a high rate that it's essentially burning through more fat than it needs with regards to, you know, normally the cell will say, all right, I need this much ATP mitochondria. I need this much energy to keep surviving. So give me this much. And the mitochondria will say, all right, I'm going to make this much ATP. I need to use this much glucose and fatty acid to get it. But in this case, um, uh, in the case of with carnitine, we basically uh, say we, we need to simply keep, um, if we don't have enough carnitine, we can't, match that. We can't get to where we need to get with regards to ATP. But with ketones, um, the cell is burning so much fat that it's gone beyond what ATP needs are. And that kind of gone beyond is what's turning into ketones. But nevertheless, none of that oxidative process can happen if we don't have sufficient carnitine. And yes, we do make it. It is that required for life, just like cholesterol. But eating it is a nice way to ensure um, you're getting enough carnitine. Because again, there are known instances um, of not getting enough. And especially this is such, it really hits home for me as a professor. I'd say once a semester, I have a young woman in my class who'll come up and apologize for falling asleep. Honest to goodness, it's happened of the, how many, seven years I've been teaching. I bet it's happened a dozen times. Uh, professor Bickman, I'm sorry, I keep falling asleep and I'll be naturally interested in the student. And I'll say, well, why are you, what's the matter? Are you just not sleeping enough? I mean, you're not going to bed on time or whatever. And they'll say, these students will say, well, I, I'm just my iron dose isn't quite right. Now, I know we've kind of shifted the topic. I'm just emphasizing the relevance of, of red meat and the benefit there. And it's all these, it's a vegetarian young woman. And I look at her and I think the same young woman who's probably deficient in iron may also be deficient in carnitine. Although we make carnitine, we don't just make iron. But nevertheless, I can't help but worry. That's probably the same person, that same kind of person who's deficient in iron because they are um, because of what they're eating and how they're living could be the same person who's going to become deficient in carnitine. So if someone wants to ensure their mitochondria are functional to the point of oxidizing lipid, they better make sure they get enough carnitine. Yeah, and again, all you do is eat some beef and you know, you've done it. Yeah, just as an aside, I mean, there's been a couple studies come out recently looking at things like major depressive disorder. And then we see the people that have 
have that going on tend to have lower rates rates of or lower amounts of serum carnitine floating around. And so, and again, as you've pointed out, people that follow a diet that is free of red meat tend to have lower carnitine levels. And so, uh, just because we talked about the, the yerba mate, I had to bring it back. You see how subtle I was doing that, bringing it back to me, guys. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so Ben, what 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 do we know? Nothing, about? nothing subtle about Sean Baker. <laughs> hey, what? Uh, is there anything, any more updates on glucagon? Because I know that's still a hot topic and we're still, that's still evolving. Any, any more information we need to talk about or anything new? No, to- yeah, nothing new that I've learned. Yeah. Uh, although you're right, I've been, it's been very gratifying to see that become more and more part of the conversation because it needs to be just to really appreciate what protein does um, uh, in, in the diet uh, insofar as protein will in, be increasing glucagon but not increasing insulin. And glucagon matters because it's so lipolytic, it's so glycogenolytic. Um, and it activates brown fat. I mean, glucagon is, is your metabolism, you know, it's metabolism's best friend. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Glucagon matters. It seems like one of those Black Lives Matter things. You need a glucagon matters. Yeah, hashtag like glucagon that. Yeah. matters. That's right. <laughs> what, now, you said you're going to be in Denver uh, speaking. And what, what, is your, what is your topic du jour going to be on, on that one? Yeah, yeah. So I think I'll come back to my own lab research. The insulin protein topic was a topic of interest for me, but not my lab research focus. Um, uh, but now I'll come back to this idea of what are ketones doing to the mitochondria. And now we have more data. We published the muscle study. We're about to publish the fat cell study. But it was this idea that I touched on earlier, which is that ketones are eliciting a disparate effect, whereas in the muscle, they're enhancing biogen, uh, sorry, mitochondrial coupling, making the mitochondria work more efficiently, whereas in the fat cell, it's making the mitochondria work less efficiently. And again, that's a metabolic advantage because that could be what we're seeing with regards to higher metabolic rate in fat tissue in the presence of ketones. But you guys know what? We actually have, I have to mention this. It's a shift in topic though. We, I have a new PhD student, just this super sharp gal from California, Aaron. We, we, she's coming from a lab of a colleague who's doing, he's, he's a neuroscientist kind of guy. He looks at He'll take the brains from the rodents and, and do these little thin little slices of brain and place these exquisitely located electrodes in the brain and detect something called long-term potentiation, which is this kind of ex vivo um, predictor of learning and memory making. And the traditional scheme that you see is in, in this little bath, and they'll put the little brain in the bath to kind of keep the brain alive to mimic um, the cerebrospinal fluid. It's, of course traditionally very glucose rich and you see this kind of typical i say it's typical because this is all anyone ever does you see this drop in ltp this long-term potentiation as you go through this stimulation to kind of mimic an experience in the brain and when we fuel it with beta hydroxybutyrate not only does it not drop it actually climbs up and so we anyway that's maybe i'll share that at next year so we don't have enough data yet but man (laughs) that was her first experiment and i'm looking at aaron and i'm saying Aaron, you don't know how fortunate you are to have your very first experience as like a proof of concept for your dissertation. Absolute, just be a home run, you know, because usually it's failure, failure, failure. Hey, we had a success, failure, failure, failure. With her, it was success from the get-go. So, Aaron, man, this is going to be one heck of a dissertation. And I'm, it'll be fun to share that research when we get more of it. So, I mean, I guess a future HPO guest to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's delightful, too. Yeah. You guys, next time, when, when that story is ready to be talked about, well, let's have Aaron do it, not me. Cool. Everyone yeah. will be tired of me by then. Well, I don't think that's the case, man. We love having you on. But, you know, it's interesting. So, I mean, I'm just, 
it'd be interesting to see, like, you know, I guess you feed the rats a diet that would be a ketogenic style diet versus a, a standard high carbohydrate diet and look at their learning, I guess. Is that, you know, well, in this case, we step. take them identical. They're, they're fed identical diets. And once we get the brains, then we incubate the brains with either glucose or ketones. The next step is just what you mentioned. Now let's look at an actual in vivo intervention, um, put them into ketosis or not, and then take the brains out and see if there's a difference that we can detect, you know, like kind of post-mortem, you know, ex vivo in that case. But so far it was just, let's just change the fuel around. What I want to do, guys, I want to actually obliterate the glucose from the cerebrospinal fluid solution entirely and just say, does the brain tissue stay alive if it's just fueled on ketones? Because the whole dogma is that the brain has to have glucose for fuel. And what if the brain just uses glucose because it's there? And so why not? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you go back to the work of uh, Cahill, I mean, when yep. he did his starvation studies, I mean, I think they had people down with blood glucose levels around you know, 20 or 10, you know, which is, yeah. I can't, you know, the units on that, but I mean, it just incredibly low amounts and they were oh, just, I mean, ridiculously just, low. And they were, you know, and I think they augmented with insulin, driving it down even lower. And, and in the presence of enough fat, the brain they were seemed, fine. seemed to do fine. So it would be interesting to see if in true, a zero situation, no glucose at all would, would, would continue viability. Yeah. Which is, of course, totally artificial situation, but Hey, I'm a scientist. But I mean, it's, it's interesting, to be, but like I said, it's fun. Like I said, this is, this is the human performance outlier. So these outliers, yeah, that's right. the edges of physiology are where we learn so much. You know, we see what is, what is really needed, what's not, whether that can be reproduced in real life is, is a different question. But, uh, you know, the, the, the classic thing is you need 100, you know, the, I don't know we've got this. We need 130 grams of protein or, or carbohydrate a day to run our brain. And yep. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people will question my, my intelligence and my insanity, but I, but I, I still think I've, I've got some degree of brain function. <laughs> I'm not having any carbohydrates in you know, basically two, over two years now. And so it's kind of comical that we still, there's still people that are out there saying that. And it's well, just- one of my, one point I, I, will, I will admit, and you can appreciate this given the topic. One of the things I really enjoy about being a professor is when I know that I can sort of disabuse a student of a false notion. When I talk about um, neuro, uh, cognitive health or, or um, neurological pathophysiology in my class, we actually talk a little bit about, we kind of have a breakout point where we just discuss what, what are the brains for the, uh, the fuels for the brain? What happens if this fuels down or this fuels up? And we challenge that idea and I show them Cahill's studies. I never make it up. I always tell my students, don't just believe me. Let's always just look at the data. And if they don't agree with the data, I say, well, then find data to, to prove it wrong because don't, I don't want to hear an opinion because I'm showing you data. So if, if there's something wrong here, let's find data to challenge it. And, but yeah, this idea of does the brain have this obligate um, use uh, requirement for glucose? I don't know that that's true. Yeah. I mean, even if it did, we, 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 we make glucose, obviously. We that's know. Exactly we right. You, yep. you can make it. So you, you've got that's what right. you need basically. You do. You know, I got to tell you, this has been fascinating, Ben. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm sure people are going to be neat. We should, we should put a uh, disclaimer at the beginning, bring a notebook yeah. uh, to start writing stuff down before you listen to it. But I, I thought, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I, would, I really enjoyed was this fact about the saturated fat, you know, being actually problematic for insulin resistance, but then realizing that you don't get that from eating saturated. No, you comes don't. From insulin. Yeah. And so that, have this to challenge the model. That's right. 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 And so we always hear the, you know, the, the sort of the, vegan advocates saying that, you know, uh, saturated fat is, is what's causing insulin resistance. And, and, and while there may be some truth to that, as you've demonstrated, the problem is you get that from insulin, not from eating saturated yes. fat. So that's a, that's a big take, take home point for me. And then uh, all the things that go into mitochondrial health. So 
Uh, so your your next what your your next big thing is the De- low carb Denver. I hopefully I'll run into you there. I know we're doing a little carnivore thing. Oh, the day, nice! The day before in Boulder. Oh, right. That Amber's. That Amber's hosting, and so I'll be speaking oh, I there. Hope, yeah, I hope. Yeah, well, I hope. And then I'll try to I'll try to spend a day or two out in Denver. I got I got I got to sign up for that and, and just kind of hang out and meet some folks because uh, yeah, this is this is interesting stuff. Oh, it'll be great to it'll be great to meet up. Ben, if you don't mind, I've got one more question. You kind of piqued my, my memory uh, when you mentioned uh, iron. Um, and if this is outside your scope, no worries. But I'm curious about iron and just its context within a meat-heavy diet. Because, you know, the only backlash I've gotten from, you know, the iron side of things with, with uh, the meat consumption is that, like, heme iron, although it's much more readily usable – uh, form of iron, it can be, there's like this, this topic of iron toxicity. Is that something that someone eating a high meat diet should be concerned with at all? Is that how, how context related that is it within maybe like the standard American diet versus, you know, someone who's on a more of a meat based diet? Yeah, boy. So this is, so it is outside my, my, my focus, at least with regards to, um, irons, the mechanism of irons toxicity is, is, close to my focus, but just too far enough away for me to speak definitively on it. But with regards to iron toxicity, I have never heard of a person getting iron toxicity unless it was by taking iron pills. Mm. I have never heard of that happening. I've only ever heard of it because someone is on an iron supplement and they take too much or a little kid gets into it. I mean, the big fear is how quickly it is lethal for children. And I think there's big labels on iron bottles on iron pill bottles and they'll say keep out of the reach of children because they'll take just a handful and they can die from iron toxicity. So I don't think I have not, I don't think I've never heard of or seen or read of any clinical situation where someone had iron toxicity from eating food of any kind. Mm -hmm. And I think there are enough human populations in the world that eat meat or beef as such a prominent part of their diet that I think that we would have seen that happening on like, population wide, um, you know, scale, like uh, different tribes in Africa. I think we would have seen that by now, but yeah. So any, I'm speculating, sure. but I can say definitively, I've never seen any instance of iron toxicity except for iron pill. Sure. And from, from my perspective, I, I have very little fear given the context of my lifestyle. It's like, if anything, most endurance athletes tend to be on the other side of that spectrum where they're they're fighting to keep their iron levels in range from. Yeah, no kidding. Exactly. Awesome. Well, well, thanks for all the the insight that you were able to give. Um, You know, we'll, we'll we'll maybe have to just get an iron expert on the show at some point. They can. Well, and I know some, so when you're ready, (laughs) I, I have some colleagues that are iron guys. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw in my, because I never can stop talking, but I'll throw in my two cents on this. <laughs> you know, we had Dennis Manganon, who's written a book called Dumping Iron. But, right. You know, yeah. iron deficiency, iron deficiency is one of the most common deficiencies in the world. So it's, you know, most, the most prevalent situation is not enough iron. Yeah, it's the most common anemia. Right. So it's, 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 it's problematic not getting enough. But I will say, you know, people eating these, these again, heavily meat-based diets, um, what we do see, particularly in a chronic situation, I'm not talking about the acute situation, but when we talk about iron storage problems, you know, as things like elevated ferritin levels, uh, that tends to run very closely with metabolic disease. And, and some people will, will try to impart that. We don't know which way the causality arrow goes. Is it the metabolic disease that's, that's allowing more iron to accumulate or is it the other way going around? I can tell you again, just seeing lots of people's labs that do this carnivorous diet, their ferritin levels either 
go down or don't go up at all, you know, even though they're eating lots and lots more meat. So we do have a way, you know, to, you know, we, we don't have great ways to get rid of iron realistically, but we can, we can regulate how much we absorb by things like hepcidin, which is produced in the liver. Yep, that's right. And so you can, you can, you can limit the intestinal absorption of iron to things like that. And so I, I'm, I'm not seeing that in these people that are eating, you know, uh, boatloads of, of, of heme iron via, via meat. You know, we, you know, we've got, you know, and we've been trying to get her on there. Uh, Molly Schuyler, who's a competitive eater. I mean, she's eaten, <laughs> this is incredible to me. She's eat, this woman who weighs about 115 pounds has put away 22 pounds of meat in one sitting, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, you know, like a wolf. I mean, that's what a wolf can max out at. Yeah. So she, she eats just like a wolf and, and, and there's no, there's no negative things that happen after that. So it's, it's just, you know, that, that to me shows you what we, you know, what we assume to be the case is not necessarily the case when we've got all these, you know, real world observations, which, you know, that's part of the scientific method. You say, well, look at this, this is happening in human beings. Why, why is this happening? So yep. uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to, to see, uh, you know, how things go over, over time with this, but look forward to seeing you hopefully in Denver, Ben. And, and, and yep. again, it's a pleasure. I, I, you know, if, if, if our listener, uh, response is anything like last time, I suspect we'll be doing round three down the road, man. Oh, I'd love it. I'd love awesome. it. This is Absolutely. Great. I'd love yeah. it. Thanks guys. This was great. Thanks for the discussion. I appreciated it. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on, Ben. Uh, please feel free to share any uh, websites, social media links that you want our listeners to check out. Um, otherwise I'll put some of your, your more popular ones kind of on the yeah. show notes. Great. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. This was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.